And then, I don't know, he changed the subject and he said to me, well, you know, I never asked you, what made you come to Kenya? Like, um, and I said, well, it started with this young girl and her name's Jeruta Kidwap, by the way. Like, yeah. I sponsored her when I was very young. Do you know, I'm, I'm still trying to find her. So this is her name. And then there was silence. Hello everyone, it's Jessie from Germany. In 2017, I was backpacking the world and I decided to make a stop in Kenya because I wanted to gain some volunteering experience in Nairobi. I came across Sumer Home through Facebook and I decided to apply as a volunteer in her organization Local Aid. I knew nothing about her, really. I didn't even listen to her dad's music, the late Assyrian singer Judge Home, and all I knew was that... She's a Syrian and has been in Kenya for more than 10 years, which really made me trust her and have confidence in her. A couple weeks later, I found myself being picked up by Sumer at the airport, and as we drove in her Jeep on the highways of Kenya, I knew this would be different from anything that I had experienced so far. I really knew it would be life-changing. And I also saw zebras all over the place next to the highway, so I knew I totally made the right decision. But it wasn't all sunshine and roses. Sumer's life revolves around the struggles of street children and vulnerable women. They live on the streets of Nairobi and with her local aid team, she's getting children off the streets and rehabilitating them. These kids do not even have the basic human rights, but with local aid, they get access to education and healthcare and most importantly, a home where they feel safe and loved. Listen to this interview and get to know Sumer as the incredible human she is and the woman that not only changed my perception of things, but of many other people who had the chance to meet her. Lastly, support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Kolakorakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kolakorakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And now, let's hear from Sumer. Awembawa, awembawa, awembawa. The... <laughs> can you sing it? Yeah. Go on. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the light leaves tonight. <laughs> Clearly, I don't have the voice of my fathers. <laughs> I'm going to add this totally into the interview. So, <clears throat> before you were Suma from Kenya, you had a life in Australia. Can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing as an Assyrian in Australia? Like... Were you born there? No, I was born in Syria, in Hasekeh, in Tultamur, Khabur. I've never been back, unfortunately. Hopefully one day. I was born in Syria and migrated to Australia when I was um, four years old. So I um, don't remember much, but special memories. I have some special memories, yeah. I have an older sister who's, who lives in the UK and two brothers, yeah. Migrated um, with my older sister, my younger brother, and I have... Uh, my youngest brother was born in Australia, so grew up in Sydney, in Australia. Went to um, school, finished my high school there, and I studied uh, fine arts and fashion design, and then eventually 
made a career out of fashion design. So I was a fashion designer for seven years. Was that your passion? Art was always my passion. Um, and then I guess uh, I began working in the retail uh, sector when I was very young as well. So I think that exposure to the creativity behind clothing and that I, yeah, I always, I always loved that. So I was given the opportunity to become a fashion designer from the years, the experience that I've had in a retail store, in a fashion retail store. As I mentioned in the intro, your dad was the famous Assyrian singer, George Home, and also your uncle, John, uh, did a lot of movies. So your family's legacy and the contribution to the Syrian nation impacted a lot of people, created beautiful childhood memories. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a beautiful thing that my father was able to create music that is you know still enjoyed and appreciated till today. Um, he had a way of creating music that was you know surrounding around topics that were very deep and and topics that Assyrians could really connect with. And I, I love the fact that he was you know music could do that and they yeah Assyrians really connected with his music because they. Obviously, many of them would understand where he was also coming from, you know, having this journey from Syria to Australia and how that was such a big change for him. But also, of course, our past. I mean, as a song about Samela and a lot of people would really be able to grieve through this song, would be able to heal through this song. So I think, the, yeah, I, I, loved, I loved the fact that he, his music did that for Syrians and they appreciated it his music because he the amount of passion that would just go in to creating this and the creative process was also very um, inspiring to see the uh, like amount of hours in his studio and did music. you visit him in the studio the studio was at the back of our house so basically oh. it's in my backyard I would see this consistency and his devotion and his like dedication to his work you barely see him come out to get a meal then going back in Wow. Yeah, so, and then you could obviously, you, his music is just very deep and, and the Syrian people could really connect to that. And I think, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. I recently read an article by Nardin Sarkis about what did Tishe, and he was mentioning how during that time, the topics that the, the movie is touching on, like, mm -hmm. you know, shame and honor and mm -hmm. all of that stuff, and uh, it wasn't... Um, like something that you would discuss at that time in our society and your uncle really touched on those topics and caused like it was those movies were considered controversial. I was just about to say that yeah. it's very controversial and he has he has um you know I guess uh reputation for that not a not a negative one just a good one <laughs> like you know to kind of just speak up about these issues and somebody has to do it right I yeah, guess that's and true. I, I, It's always nice, like I said, to have make music, make art, make movies that people can relate to. Because this was what Syrians would actually go through, you know, dating a Nahraya or yeah, things like these uh, kind of topics. So. I want to touch a little bit about your fashion design um, background. How did your career, your job look like as a fashion designer? So I was, like I said, I was a retail assistant. I got um, promoted to be the buyer. So it began by... Um, the company employing me to buy all the products, buy all the items that would go into this shop, this retail shop. Um, and then they decided to create their own brand, so have their own fashion line, and they promoted me to become the designer of this new line. 
So they weren't buying items, wholesaling items from other brands anymore. They decided that they'll make their own line. And so um, they, yeah, I remember the first day they came to me and they said, do you have a passport? And, and I was like, yeah. And then it was great because I knew I would be able to travel. So uh, from then on, I was in the creative process of actually designing various different like uh, clothing, men's, women's, accessories, belts, shoes, um, bags and we'd have a we'd actually have our factory in China so I stayed and lived in China for quite some time we'd have an apartment how, how long at some point um, a month at a time then travel back to Sydney then go back so wow. when it was the when we'd have to design the you know you have to work a season ahead as a designer so we traveled to Europe and and uh, actually try to see the upcoming trends, upcoming fashion trends. And once I've been inspired by all this, I would um, start the creative process of designing the um, designs. And then I will travel to China to hand in these designs and sketches and um, yeah, all of the documents for that. And then they'll begin producing it in China. So I'd have to, I'd have to be there to actually do all the sampling and all wow. that. So yeah, well, what it was was my my boss thought that it would be cheaper to just rent out an apartment in China rather than, you know, um, going there and, back and forth. And back back and forth. And forth. So that's why, because we had the apartment, we could stay at long, um, you know, periods of time at one time. So I'd stay there for a month, a month and a half, two months sometimes, and just make sure that all the samples are set and ready to go and shipped to Australia. How old were you? Because that's a, that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, it was. Uh, quite amazing like being able having this opportunity to see so many countries at one time um i mean in such a short time but uh how old was i okay so it must have been about yeah young 23 or so would you say it definitely shaped you as a person like getting to know so many different cultures traveling around mm. opening your horizon mm, most definitely i think that's <laughs> that's definitely a plus side to traveling um especially China, there's so many things when you travel, you come back and just really get to appreciate what you have here. And I think gratitude and appreciation after you've seen different cultures and what they have, what they don't have, that's that really builds your character as well. And also um, just the way that people live and their, their way of being, the way that they think, it's different. And maybe you can, sometimes you learn a lot from their way of thinking and it helps you grow. On your website, of uh, your organization, mm -hmm. you wrote, you toured around as a fashion designer and you had a wardrobe that most of the people would die for. <laughs> um, That's true. So you, I can see you had a certain lifestyle and luxury. Mm -hmm. So if you have all that stuff, mm -hmm. like shouldn't you be happy and like satisfied with it? Like why, why would you then go to Kenya where um, you live a completely different lifestyle. Yeah, I think I I was definitely very blessed to have like to have, of course, like I said, this wardrobe full of clothing, and um, basically, if I designed a pair of shoes, I could have every color in like you know in that pair or design. But I, I don't think it made me completely happy what it did was just satisfy my craving and um my love for art because that's what i feel about that experience that it was very, it was it was it really allowed me to express my creativity but it never fulfilled that deep need inside me to serve or um you know to want to do to do more i remember when i was also in uh, year four yeah 
the next door to our public school was a um, facility for children with disabilities and I, I went one day and I said, hey, can I volunteer here? I would like to, like in my lunch times, I could come over and I could um, maybe just feed them or whatever. So I've always at a very young age just felt a need to serve or just do something, you know, to give back. <laughs> so I did that and that was my first, my yeah, first memory of like how, how good do we feel as human beings when we are able to give, you know, a bit of our time. And uh, when I was, so this is where my whole journey, uh, I guess, began to Kenya anyway. When I was 15 years old, I decided that I want to sponsor a little girl from Kenya because I just never really understood poverty. I just, I used to watch the TV ads and of course they're those typical ads of, you know, famine in Africa and, or just poverty in general. And I honestly did not understand. That's, that's at that stage is when I used to ask some heavy questions to myself of why do we as people as humanity allow this to happen and you know I I know that we are capable of feeding like these children we have enough food to be able to give why 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 have we allowed this to happen and I mean that's quite young I was still you know still uh, so young and I just wanted to answer some of these questions I had in mind so I I had this opportunity because ads will come up about sponsoring this little girl and I'm like, okay, this world is crazy, no one's doing anything, I have to do something and this is my opportunity. So there was an ad of a of a girl? Uh, yeah, so, you know, it was an ad for, um, it was uh, one of these organizations that allows you to sponsor a child in any of these developing countries and you could sponsor for like $35 a month and they would be given the money for food, education and shelter and so forth. And I took up that and I began, yeah, sponsoring this little girl called Jiruda Kibiwat from Kenya. And I did that for several years. <laughs> uh, How did you afford that as a 15 years old? Oh, yeah. So that's when I, I made the decision to first, before I sponsored her, I made the decision first to go and look for a job. And that's where my retail experience came from. That's, that was when I first started working in a retail fashion store. So in Australia, the legal age of working is 15 years old. Um, and I was lucky enough to go and um, apply for a job in a, just a retail store. And uh, I told my mom, hey, I got the job and I'm going to take up this sponsorship for this girl. And that was, yeah, that's how it all started. I can imagine, you know, other 15 years old, they're more focused probably buying them, you know, stuff from themselves and you're just oof, very inspiring. It's funny you say that because just the other day I was thinking about how I don't ever remember going up to my mom and saying, mom, can you buy me this? Can you buy me that? It was always this need of like, how can I give rather than what can I get? Like, yeah. I'm, I don't know, don't understand that part, but that, yeah, that was me. <laughs> And so, so you sponsored a girl from Kenya, mm -hmm. and that was also how your connection to Kenya started. Did you then read more about it and then said, oh, I'm going to travel to Kenya, or how did that transition? Mm. Oh, no, so I took up the sponsorship. I sponsored her for many years, and honestly, I became... Well, first of all, what happened was after several years, I got a letter saying that uh, from the organization that I sponsored her from, saying you don't need to sponsor this child anymore. She, you've you've been able to not only support her, but her whole family. And now she's moved from the rural area to the city. And this has been great. Would you like to sponsor another child? I, I mean, that was mind blowing for me. My $35 a month was literally able to shape and change a whole child's life and not just hers but her whole family that was uh, yeah it just made me think if I could do that with just $35 what more could I do that's when I became insatiable about helping I started reading biographies about 
um, like humanitarian causes, biographies on women or people that have gone through challenges in their own communities in these like you know developed countries and how they got themselves out just really inspiring things about how people from these places have made such dramatic changes in their own communities you know and then again it needs to make me think well what can i do if they can do that yeah watch documentaries movies read books and can I, you name just, a couple of people that inspired you um, from what the, the from books? the yeah the biographies that you read um, yeah desert flower well, you know books like this where they tell this personal experience of something they did not like in their own communities and want to change and yeah, I was blown away by that but again this thing of I can do something like I know I can and it's um you know being able to sponsor this girl and we all can do something and so anyway what happened was you got this letter and you're still swimming at home with the fashion designer in australia yeah. and then what changed where the moment where it just like uh i think decided to just leave and travel to kenya was when i was on a design flight i was traveling from sydney to china and i watched a documentary on child soldiers and that's really horrific like what these children have to go through as child soldiers in um sudan And it became like so difficult to watch. I would literally be crying. And this was me. I mean, from a younger age, I would watch watch these documentaries or read these books and just really feel so emotional about it. Like it just we'd be able to cry. Yeah. And anyway, the flight attendants would come up. Are you alright? What's going on? I'm like, darling, just leave me alone. And I was sitting. <laughs> I was just sitting with my boss, and we became quite close because we travel the world together, right? And um, I turned around to him, and I after that, I watched the documentary, and I said, look. You are going to give me two weeks off and I'm going to get off this plane and book my ticket to Kenya and I'm going to do a volunteer program, okay? And he's just looking at me, with, you know, because I said it with such certainty that he just looked at and me. The and the crying said, face. <laughs> yes, and the crying face and the angry and, and he's like, okay, fine. So that was it. I got off. I wow. you know, opened up my laptop, booked the, booked the volunteer program and within less than a few weeks I was in Kenya and ever since that day making that decision that's the way I've literally lived my life in like made decisions upon some when something stirs my heart and when I feel so inspired about something I think this is what you call you know having a calling or being able to listen to who you really are so many people want to do things and they just disregard it because it's not right or it's not secure yeah there's in risks and there's fear fear is the biggest thing right and i honestly ever since then it's really shaped me because i because i was able to do it as well i'm like this is this is a way of living like i, I have a feeling in my heart i want to do something and i act upon it without fear and without any negative thoughts and yeah <laughs> so what happened next you booked your flight and you Well, I was actually um, placed at a, within a volunteer program. So that was to teach art to a primary school in a slum community in Kenya. And, you know, I guess then I didn't really know what else I could offer. And I didn't want to just go there and do nothing and just see the poverty. I actually wanted to be productive and make, I, I, of course, a change. And so I was placed in a school and that's when I got to understand the communities and what they're facing. I was placed in a school and I was yeah, teaching them art, but I was still like very curious about more of the issues, not just, okay, there was these schools that they didn't have three meals a day and there was those issues that were surrounding education, but then I wanted to know more. So I asked the principal, hey, can you please take me out and sh yeah, take me around the community and tell me... What Show me the real deal. Yeah, yeah, what's going on here? What are the issues? 
I feel compelled to help in some way and I don't know where or how but I just want to see he introduced me to a lot of people he introduced me to um, eventually the woman who I founded my organization with and she was I met her and she was working with women living with HIV AIDS and here and how the community spoke about her that she had been devoting 10 years of her time to work with these women to empower them yeah, she literally devoted, again, these are the type of um, stories that I would literally read about back in Australia about mm. women that were in their own communities, barely having their own funding, but able to give back somehow. So she spent 10 years of her time volunteering in their community, changing women's lives. And I just was so inspired. And I said, listen, woman, I want to work with you and I want to help you do what you're doing. Um, and I'm so glad I did that, actually, because I really hate this idea of NGOs coming in, you know, these developed countries and trying to set up their own strategies and ideas and and having solutions for for issues they don't even know what don't know anything about. But anyway, so I was happy to to found my organization with her. She was she was quite inspiring. So I was um, okay. So first of all, I did that volunteer program. Sorry, I'll just finish off that. Yeah. I went back to um, Australia and I could not handle like being back just to just to forget everything that I've just seen was just not possible and I had also promised the that lady that ins that inspired me I said look I'm going to come back and we can do something together right so how long did you stay in Kenya the first time yeah my volunteer program was just for two weeks oh wow right and then I told her I felt inspired from then on to I didn't know how I didn't even think that I'll be living in Kenya or I'm going to give up my life in Australia or anything at that point it was just I, I want to help you um and she's probably thinking oh this you know mzungu which means white person <laughs> mzungu. <laughs> mzungu is just uh yeah she's gonna go back to australia and forget all about us but i, I didn't know i went back to australia i could not my mind my heart was not settled until i did more so i just left and went back to kenya that woman i said hey i'm here let's, i'm ready now would you like to you know well, i want to establish an organization let's work together and wow. she was shocked she was like Okay, there's some real ones <laughs> because I mean yeah. I assume she would thought she would think I would not come back because there'd been so many Westerners and foreigners coming in promising taking pictures and then leaving. Pictures yeah, from, you know, yeah. So what what I really appreciate is that you really want to make sure that the donation gets to the actual people because mm -hmm. most of the times you have those big organizations where you donate to, uh, to and you just don't know what it happens if it go, goes into i don't know advertisement or employees car so you you really sometimes don't see the direct impact from this money and you you had that also with that girl did you ever actually meet the girl yes that's a yeah that's a very um beautiful story actually um to me it's very personal and beautiful so when i enter to answer your question when i entered kenya the first thing i thought of was this little girl because obviously when i when they told me that you don't need to sponsor her anymore they didn't allow me access to continue actually communicating with her mm. which is yeah quite strange so imagine having all these years of writing together pictures and then all of a sudden it's just cut off um so then i went Yeah, so when I decided I'm moving to Kenya and we're gonna, I'm going to found this organization, I began looking for her. I looked for her everywhere for several years, like over five, six years. I tried calling the organization that I originally sponsored her from. And I said, hey, I'm looking for this girl. You know, this was her name. I sponsored her in this year. And they said, I'm sorry, we don't hold records of that many years ago. 
and I was a bit disheartened, like, okay, great, <laughs> like, I, that didn't work, I asked, I, I said, surely, you know, in Kenya, once you name a few names, like, people will be able to find her, and that didn't work, I used social media, I tried, like, right, you know, just posting, does anybody know this name, nothing, so, I mean, I, I don't like to say I gave up, but there was no hope, really, after so many years <laughs> looking for her, yeah. you know, and then, um, after, you know, I've, I've established my NGO and set up some programs and then I, I was compelled to do some work with animals, so conservation work in some of the wildlife uh, parks there in Kenya. Because I had worked with children, done all that work, but in, in some I have this strong connection with animals and just love for, um, you know, wildlife and wildlife protection and conservation. And so I began working with some rangers, um, with some rangers that, you know, the rangers that protect wildlife and I was placed in this um, national park and there's many national parks in Kenya. There's like several of them. I chose this one because I was just, I don't know, pulled to this one in particular. Um, and I started working with these rangers for one week and I got connected to one in particular and we really formed, like he showed me how they would come in and poach the animals because you know how there's that, that um, the act of like, whether it's Chinese, whoever come in and start poaching and killing animals for their horns, for elephants, for their tusks, because it's yeah. like, you know, very valuable and it'll just be all these issues. And I would like, okay, I will see how I can help you with GPSs, this and that. And anyway, so we connected for a week, seeing how I could try to help these rangers. So I left the park, went back home in um, Kenya still, but I kept in contact with him and I said, hey, How's it going down there? And he's like, yeah, everything's fine. And I said, you know what? I never, I never met any female rangers. Do you have any female rangers working there? And he said, well, we do, but unfortunately, when you were here, they were not there at the time. I said, oh, that's a shame. And then I don't know. He changed the subject, and he said to me, well, you know, I never asked you. What made you come to Kenya, like? Um, and I said, well, it started with this young girl, and her name's Jeruta Kibiwop, by the way. Like, yeah. I sponsored her when I was very young. Do you know? I'm, I'm still trying to find her, so this is her name. And then there was silence. And I said, hello. And he's like, wow, the, one of the girls, one of the rangers that works here is Jeruta Kibiwop, the girl you're just talking about. <laughs> and I was shocked and in disbelief because I'm like, no, this guy, this, this range is telling a lie. I'm like, no, are you sure? I've got a picture of her and I've kept it on my fridge, like uh, up on my walls. And I, and I took a picture of her, sent her by WhatsApp immediately. Now this girl, this picture was very, she was very young when I first had it. And he said, yes, this is her. Like, oh she's, my God. She's like, I, I have those ones. I, I was so shocked. I was like, how does this happen? Like this is, and then, you know, screaming to my best friend, oh my God. Found this her. cannot be a coincidence. This no, is divine no. yeah, intervention. Whatever. Right? Oh and, my god. And then he said yes, and not only that, she's here right now. Would you like to speak to her? And like my heart was pounding, and then she got on the phone, sweet voice. But I was just like, hi, I've been looking for you for so long. It was honestly just such a such an amazing like moment in my life. Like I just couldn't believe like how this happened. And of course, I'm in it. I mean, like a, you know, just quickly prepared myself a day or two after that. I just packed my stuff and went to meet her. And it was this incredible woman who would come out with a gun, like, because she would have to protect wildlife, you know, that was her job. And I was like, wow, she's now inspiring me. Like, I, how, wow, what an incredible woman. We sat, had a tea and just like, you know, shared stories. And she, it was, yeah, very... 
How was her reaction when she saw you for the first time? I have a video of it. We were both like crying and just, um, yeah, it was really beautiful. And she would tell me more about her family. Ever since then, I would always like every time I would take the kids, the ones in my organization, to the coast and let them enjoy, um, you know, the summer at the the coast side by the beach. I'd always bring her along, and so she's gotten to meet that the kids from my work and. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. It just goes to show to me that you know when you really follow your heart, what's meant to be is meant to be, and you rule. Like that was almost like a like a realization, acceptance from God, from universe, whoever you want to, you know, whoever you're more connected with, that you are on the right path, you know, and you'll always be on the right path when you do follow your heart. And it's just that synchronicity of that happening is very rare. It's not a coincidence. No. There are no coincidence yeah. in life, and so that's yeah. If, if I take anything away from that, it's just like it taught me to keep following my heart, you know. Because even before I chose to go and visit, uh, to do this like uh, wildlife conservation work, I was feeling a bit guilty inside thinking, mm, this is going to take away my time from serving the kids that I'm working with and these other programs. But I'm like, you know, of course, me being me, like, no, I have to listen to this. Uh, like, I really want Got to do you. it. Yeah, the, the feeling in my heart. So I did it. And again, that was always also the, the answer that it's everything was fine if i wanted to do that then you should go ahead with it that story just shows me how everything is connected like you you going to this retail you know trying to get money to support this girl then this also impacts your career choice and then it's just wow because again like honestly there are several hundreds of national parks i could have gone and picked the main park right and she's literally on the other side of the the country in another national park i had to choose that park and i had to speak to this ranger who's working directly with it's it's incredible life can be incredible and magical actually that is really the the um the word that i can use life can be very magical if you just follow your heart (laughs) yeah just uh real quick um touching on that transition from Australia to Kenya, mm. how did your family react and your friends? Like, did they say, oh, she's so crazy? Or did they support you? Because mm. it, it's a bold move. It's yeah. not just like, oh, I'm going, I'm going to, I don't know, New Zealand. It's yeah. Kenya. Completely different culture, environment. Um, uh, what do you say? Um, living standard. Mm. Um, I think, okay, so because it wasn't just like, I woke up one day and said, I'm going to Kenya and I'm living there. That's it. I did the volunteer program. I came back. I shared my experiences. I shared photos. I did, you know, told people the story. So they got a bit of connection to Kenya and me living there. Um, and then I went back again. So it wasn't until the third time. I actually traveled like three times to Kenya. Because after the second time, being very certain that I'm going back to build this organization, I still came back after a little while. And then that's when I kind of um, announced to everybody that, look, I, I, I'm... No, it kind of also happened gradually, but I, I said I'm going to be staying there this time for a longer time. So um, my mum was very, of course, mum being mum was very worried. Like for many, I think for a couple of years, two, three years, while I talked to her on the phone, was always very worried. How is it there? Are you safe? Is it, you know, all of it? What 
are you eating? Are you, you know, where are you sleeping? All of these things. But mm. it's really amazing and beautiful that now I'd say she's one of my greatest like uh, supporters, honestly. And you know, she'll even she's done fundraisers for me, and she'll just yeah, she's really adapted that this is my life. And my friends, I feel I've been yeah, honestly, very very supportive. I wouldn't, I don't know how other people feel about it, and I know that there's many people that would be like, why doesn't she just stay, you know, and just get married, have kids, do the traditional. <laughs> exactly. Is this life that she's living um no that's definitely not for me that's not yeah and, and no i was very i was very blessed to have family and friends that supported it and every time i would you know come back to tell stories or put on a charity dinner they'd be there supporting so i'm very thankful for that actually see obviously you do yeah. miss your family and friends they miss me we have to try and be in contact even though um so yeah especially i have you know best friends i've got like i'm a godmother to uh, one of my best friends daughter so all of these it's it's, it was difficult, but I never, it never really weighed me down to the point where it was difficult for me to stay. I was so overwhelmed and just by living my truth was just fulfilling, you know. So yeah. it didn't really get to me that much. Some people might not be able to do it. They're just too much of a family person. Of course. You know what I mean? Or too yeah. much of a, no, I just, I'm different, I guess. Yeah, I also felt like when I was traveling the world, I... First of all, mothers are mothers. Obviously, they're worried. But as when you share a lot and like you tell that you're open about your experience and you like give them the feeling that you have a plan and you know what mm. you're doing, they're more supportive. And now you know she like at the beginning she said you're gonna get killed and now she's driving me to the airport. <laughs> so, um, and you definitely need friends. I think that are not so demanding and like why don't you text me every day? Why don't you text me every yeah. second day? Because when you're away, it's really hard to keep up like you're not part of the daily life anymore and to keep mm -hmm. that bond is really hard did you did you struggle with that yeah i think yeah it's always difficult i have to come back and then you know catch up on everything but i i've also been this person i'm a very solitude person so even though even when i was in australia all my friendships were they all kind of understood that i was this person that was a bit to myself and and they also, yeah, like I would not be one to constantly be taxing and having yeah. like, they all knew that someone loves her space. So, so they adapted to me from, from the beginning of our friendship kind of thing. So when I moved, it was like, yeah, it's not so hard to, to not talk for a little while. I mean, you see, the thing is with long distance relationships and friendships, it's like, you know, the love is there, whether you know every day what's happening in their life or not. That's what you really, the strong foundation is, that you love and respect each other. And you know you're going to see each other soon and then you can connect again. It's not a must to know everything about your friends, like, yeah. like constantly, really. You, unless, of course, there's a need like this. You need some support, you need healing, you need to talk about something. But everyone, everyone's individual must live their own life and go out searching and making themselves happy and fulfilled. Yeah. And that's a, I think that's even the best friendship that when you don't talk for a year, mm. you just pick up on the conversation that you just had a year ago and it's the same feeling and no hard feelings. Yeah. All good. Yeah. yeah. That's when you know you're right. That's how, when you know it's a real friendship because you respect, you're not so needy, you know, that you need to give me all of this for me to be your friend, all this time I need. Like, so, yeah. That's the way I like to have friendships anyway. <laughs> yeah. One of our co-hosts asked the question, how do you define the word home? Like, what does it mean to you? That question is really interesting because I don't, for me, it transcends and it's more far reaching than just my traditional family life, which of course I do feel at home when I'm in Australia. Who doesn't feel at home when they're around their mother, right? Um, 
but for me I've always felt I've always been a soul searcher and meaning that I'm always searching for a place and experiences that make me feel like it make me understand and learn about myself more and that's when I really feel at home so in a way being going out there and exploring being a part of a global family of the natural world and how I fit into this world because it's it's now more an expansive kind of home for me it's not my home that I live in in this geographic little area with yeah. my own family you know and i think that's where experiencing and looking at a home in that more like transcendent or like more expansive way allows you to be able to connect to more cultures and learn from them and appreciate them and you grow and i think that's where i feel more at home when i'm kind of like feeling that i that i can be free having the freedom to explore connect to people yeah it's it's yeah it's a wonderful feeling i think and it's very important um i think home should really be about home within like how do you feel within yourself if you're not comfortable in your own skin um whether it's it's unfortunate even if you're within a home like that's why my point is of being at home in a you know traditional home family if you're not comfortable within or at home within because you're you're needing something more but you're still staying there that's not really home to me mm-hmm. you know home is going out there and listening to that and fulfilling that then you feel relaxed and you're at peace and you found freedom in yourself like that's again that feeling of safety and reassurance that you are who you are and you know who you are yeah yeah 3 and a half years ago when i met you and i was so like young and like exploring and like very I was uh, I was telling you how you live a very unconventional life as an Assyrian. Obviously today my opinion is different because there are not just one way how to be Assyrian. Mm-hmm. But um and you said this is your normal mm-hmm. way of living like that's for you conventional. Yeah. I I guess in a way because I feel like normal the normal that we live in like let's say at least in the in Australia in the western kind of culture and life that's not normal to me because that's more a robotic systematic kind of lifestyle that we're having a force to grow up into without without making our own choices of what we want with our lives right and i think being unconventional of course you have to be very fearless and i can't live any other way because that's what really brings me so much peace and and um evolving as a person that's Yeah and I yearn for that more and more like I don't yearn to be to be settled into a society or yearn to fit in or anything I I want to go out there and do what someone's never done I want to go and explore life <laughs> and um because I know that's where I'm really going to grow how how much can you evolve as a person if you're just going to fit into a little box or be part of you know part of a system mm-hmm. that's I don't know I'm like of course there's I'm saying that and many people might think oh well that's that's a bit bold or wild you know because it's it's also beautiful to have a family grow up have a job have a stability have a family and of course I'll probably yearn for that you know but um just not in the way that it's it's done in in the way it's yeah. in lifestyle yeah. it's funny because I had an interview also with Ashok Kasrani mm-hmm. and I asked him the same question and he answered it the same way as me so <laughs> yeah. it's really beautiful yeah okay um moving on to the actual organization that we're always mm-hmm. mentioning but not really <laughs> talking about um you're the founder of the humanitarian aid organization local aid 
in Kenya. Tell me a little bit more about your organization. Yeah, you already touched on how it started. Like, mm -hmm. though, like how did you, what, you're in Kenya now, how do you start an organization and, and um, what are you really focusing on? Okay, so basically local aid is, um, you know, an organization that empowers, empowers vulnerable children and the marginalized community. And we really try to make an impact in the areas of education, um, empowerment, health. And we've been working in these sectors for several years anyway. So we've built a children's home for former street children to provide safety and education to them. We've rescued over 80 kids off the streets. So that's our kind of educational street child program and then we have the health clinic where we are serving the community with affordable and accessible health care because in that community they just yeah that health care is just um, non-existent really or they do and it's like private clinics and they cost they're just very expensive and the community just can't afford it and then of course women's empowerment which is um, to economically uplift women from um, these low-income communities so we have quite a few sectors, but I really, let, you know, these last few years wanted to narrow it down and just focus on one, one or two sectors. So we've, at the moment, we've kind of passed on the clinic to local, the local community, and they've taken it over as a, still as a community uh, clinic. And I guess that was also my vision anyway, eventually, when I ever leave, it's always to pass it over to locals so they can continue on the work. Definitely, it shouldn't be dependent yeah, on yeah. Yeah. foreign aid, no, definitely. And my ideas of charity have changed so much over the you know 12 years that I've been living there but we still have yeah we have the program for the kids still running we we have um support that comes in to to sponsor these children we we go out there and just um kind of find kids that are living on the streets and rescue them rehabilitate and find a safe home that they can or our home <laughs> um or a boarding school that they could get an education and yeah live in when we went together to this art program for street children, um, I met kids that were still living on the, on the street at that time, and they were high on glue. And um, can you talk a little bit more about in what kind of conditions street children must live in Kenya? Why are they high on glue? How do they get the glue? So what happens is that kids end up on the streets in Kenya when they're, they're either orphaned They run to the streets or they are um, living with a single mother that obviously they cannot afford like because it's low-income communities it's slum communities there's no jobs so the mother cannot look after her child or the father is an alcoholic and doesn't um, that's the only kind of guide um, guardian that the child has is an alcoholic father or a mother that cannot provide or an auntie or a grandmother just is just living in poverty so there's no way and the child thinks you know if i run to the streets at least i can pick up the garbage i'll eat something like this 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 home does not provide me with any um, education or, or food and so it's going out looking for greener pastures basically and it's definitely not greener pastures out there because it's very it's honestly a tough life so they follow these other street kids and they get adapted in these groups and each area has their own groups and they live in the most horrific conditions I've ever seen in my life I mean you've seen it also so honestly be sometimes even gunned down by police they have um, no access to food or water and they're literally picking out of like uh, picking out of like garbage bins uh, market 
from the markets when you have foods left over on the floor. And what they're doing is they, they, they go to a shoemaker who uses glue to fix their shoes, just a local shoemaker, and they are, whatever they beg, they beg for money, right? So if, if somebody's going to give them five, ten cents, they go to the shoemaker, they pay for that glue because once they get that glue, they sniff the glue, it numbs their pain of hunger, the, the pain of the cold, or the pain of just being lonely and and you know the trauma that they face on the street it numbs everything just like any other um, like most drugs do right it's a stimulant to make you feel better and more able to adapt in that kind of horrific environment they do that and some people have asked me if they beg why don't they just buy food of course if you beg and you've got a lot you know you can are able to raise enough money you'll go buy yourself food but most of the time the scenario is that they will get only a few you know five ten shillings and if they sniff the glue they are able to go out the whole day without eating because it's numbing them they're numbing oh. their whole body right um so people yeah criticize the kids because they're begging they should buy food it's not the case um, they, it's a cycle. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a cycle. It's horrific. They they get gunned down by police. The community thinks they they call them scavengers. Literally, the translation of chokras, which is what the community calls them, and uh, dirty uh, scavengers is just like rats. You know, when rats scavenge for like things, uh, like garbage and stuff. Yeah, yeah, like uh, oh, rubbish. Man. Basically, so... like rubbish. So you're a child that's growing up. Honestly, your basic human rights are non-existent just definitely non-existent and it's from food to education to healthcare to love to you know anything that's why i always say that i believe street children are the most vulnerable children on earth there's so many other yes traumatic or experiences or events that happen in other children's life but this definitely has to be the worst because that it's everything it's hunger it's being raped it's being killed it's been um you know witnessing your they're poisoned to death by their own community members there are mothers sometimes that they get so sick of these kids begging that they'll give them a bread put poison in it feed it to the child and literally the street children would be there this child would be throffing from the mouth dying and his friends are watching him die that's the life i mean when when i first witnessed this i had a group of 50 of them when i first was introduced to kids and it happened because i was it was my first year in kenya and it was Christmas time and I was like, well, I, I really need to do something. I see all these kids on the streets. I want to learn about their stories, what's happening in my eagerness to always learn about issues. They were always like, what's happening here, all these kids? So I finally got a friend to help me fill up a van full of food and drinks and, and just Christmas um, clothing and stuff and go out there and meet these kids. And I was absolutely torn heartbroken that was probably the most depressing time like that i've ever had to face to sit here listen to all these stories that happened to kids that like i could see i literally five six you know i mean they would be as old as of course 17 18 but that's the dangerous part because then they become honestly like thugs that's their life they yeah. don't know any other way and i don't think it's fair even to judge them because what other way did they really of have of course but how do you communicate with them like they, they talk Swahili? Uh, yeah, the official language um, is Swahili and English. So they, they learned that in school. And they've, uh, even though many have not gone to school, so it was hard they pick at some it up. time. But I also learned Swahili, so I would communicate mm. in Swahili with them, which is their official language. Because some would go to school for a few years and all of a sudden the mother died and the, 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 the father had to marry another woman. And that stepmother would barely like, 
you know, abandon the child. Abandon the child. They should care more for their own children. So they feel it's very unfair. <sighs> so they run to the streets, and that's why maybe some have had one year, two years of experience of um, educational um, experience. But other than that, yeah, many could not speak, and I was speaking Swahili. And but yeah, that blew my mind. I could not believe it, and I said to them all then and there. I'm going to do anything I can to help you because this is not right. I don't. I couldn't walk away. <laughs> I could like. How do you watch this? And how do you, how do you, how does anyone get to experience this right in front of their eyes and walk away and pretend that that that's not part of their world anymore? You know, you can It's not something you can unknow. I knew it, and I could not live with not doing something to help them. So there's a whole lack of empathy and and just like how the society works there yeah it's very it becomes you know you become sensitized to watching these they're like what what they would call them sometimes is the wallpaper of nairobi nairobi is the main city in kenya so it's like just a you're sensitized it's just the background to them these kids are just a you know living on the street sleeping people will go yeah. past But, but they're also struggling like they're yeah, all struggling so everybody's yeah. struggling and because you're struggling you cannot help others Yeah, you know, I, I don't mind that part. I totally understand that part. My communication to the um, community, what I was always advocating is at least don't make their life more difficult. Don't yeah, that's them down. Don't, like, don't poison them. Don't treat them. Sometimes all they want is love. Sometimes all they want is just someone to talk to. Come with a book. You don't even need any money. Come with a book and read them something. Honestly, they, I remember when they used to tell me, Summer, you can come and feed us. Yes, it's beautiful. It's amazing. But please, can you take us to school? We want to learn. We want to get out of this situation. They were the ones who mostly inspired me to set up all these programs. Of, yeah. I mean, of course, I knew that they needed an education and I had begun that. But it was it was lovely to see that they're not just... They just don't want me to come and just feed them and go. They want a way out. Basically, what we do, we uh, for my work, we go out onto the streets and we we start to build trust. So it takes like a few weeks before they get to know um, who I am and my team. But after you know many years, many of the kids know who I am. So there was particular kids that I was I was working on to get to the home. So, you know, we have to get them to trust us while they're still on the streets, feed them while they're still on the streets and then tell them, look, would you like to go to school? Or we have a home, you could come and we have all these uh, services for you. So there was a couple that we were still in that process of trying to um, trying to admit him into the home. So we promised, you know, we promised that we're going to give him an education and all that. So he was still living on the streets. There was two of them. Now, these two were part of six boys that one day went and stole water from a supermarket a very local supermarket and theft in kenya is not taken lightly but to thieves like actual thieves they will kill them immediately because they're just so sick of thugs running around and um you know uh, stealing from community members so what they'll do if you if you steal something you kill them but in this scenario what happened was the community members i mean they could see that they were young kids and and what they did was they took them all because they stole the water they were caught they took them all and put them in a room and literally with wood shanks and steel bars and any like material that they had around them you know just really rough material and slaughtered them to death i mean just beat them and beat them and beat them six of them until they literally died in a room if you've seen this room It was so horrible. Did you see their room? Like, yeah, I've seen, I've seen the whole walls were full of blood, like just blood. And you just think to yourself, these innocent children, I was, and, and especially knowing two of them that I was trying to work on, literally take to school. And this is, why did they, they didn't serve to die like that. You for know, water. For, and, and that's the worst part that you, 
you guys are not serious. They were stealing water. This was a need to fill a thirst, not, not to steal. If they wanted to steal um, something that was valuable, they would steal a phone or whatever. That's a crime or whatever. Even being charged, you know, these are street kids. I wouldn't really call it a crime anyway, but still, it was water. They were thirsty. I, it was honestly the most devastating thing to experience, and I was very vocal about it, honestly. I really wanted justice for these kids, so I tried to just speak up that it's all our responsibility. That's where more people got to hear about what my work was because we put it in the paper about this is not right. This is all our responsibility to protect these children against this. They do not deserve to die. Who's going to take up like responsibility for this? Like it was horrible. So you're not only serving the children, you're also being vocal about it, um, addressing the issues to, to the politics, to, to the community, yeah. trying to raise awareness about that. Uh, of course, most definitely. I think we've we found that, you know, changing policies is very crucial to the issue of street children because it's an actual... First of all, this is really ridiculous, but it's against the law to be a street child in Kenya. So just imagine that life. It, it's definitely not their <clears throat> choice, is it? When you when you commit a crime, you've chosen to commit that crime. How is it that a child that's on the street, not by their own choice, but by force, because that was their unfortunate circumstances, they ended up on the streets, and now that's against the law. So, which means, this is just to me, what this is, is a way of the authorities, the police, to get away from to get away with beating them to death, to get away with slaughtering them, yeah. to get away with abusing them, you know, um, if they have that law in place, really. Because, I mean, there's so much politics behind street children. It's disgusting. Sometimes the government will even round up many of them. When it's the political time, they will just use them for political movements, so just for numbers and votes. And so they'll literally collect them all, put them on a put them on a truck, behind a truck, send them to a place and make them all vote and we'll probably kill them all. Like it's it, You'll never hear of these kids that were taken. They'll promise them, they'll promise them that really uh, we're going to come and take you to a, to, to a government institution, we're going to protect you, but really what they want is numbers. I mean, this is very controversial. Like, it's not spoken about much, but I know that this happens. It's, I mean, there's just so um, many issues. So many issues. I, I, if I, yeah, I'd be talking all day about how horrific their lives are. and There could be like a five, five episodes. Mm, of... Exactly. Every um, day of the street child, which is um, always on the 12th of April, we always do a march or a walk to raise awareness, to advocate for the rights of street children. Yeah. Um, I remember this kid showing me his id that he just recently got he was like look i have an id now like it like a mm -hmm. identification mm -hmm. card yeah. and that's when i truly understood before you're nobody yeah that's and if you're nobody if something happens to you you're invisible nobody will care what happens to you mm. so he was so happy to have this id card because he's somebody now of course yeah that's very important to them um and you're so right they are invisible. There's an actual large, very large organization called Invisible Children, and this is what it focuses around the identity of street children and how they can work on making these kids feel like they belong into society, into family, into these people. These, these children are part members of society. In fact, it really, for me, my main thing is you cannot, you cannot push this 
issue of street children to a side because it's going to come and bite you in the end. These kids are the future. If they're not educated, they are going to turn into thugs. They have no other way. So what happens to your security in your own communities? It becomes a security issue. You all complain about being robbed and, you know, it's unsafe in these communities. We'll make it safe by making sure that these kids do not end up to be criminals and thugs. So I don't like it when the locals just complain about safety because I don't think they do enough. I mean, not just, not just... They don't go to the root of the problem. Yeah, they don't get to the root of the problem, exactly. And yeah. I, I, you know, get them educated, get them off the streets, and you'll see how a community has changed. So it's a, it, it really interrelates into other poverty issues of the country, and that's why I feel like, hey, you guys, the, okay, if you don't care about them, but just know that it's also going to impact you. So let's do something. Is that not enough for you to get up and make a change, um, you know, change the, the environment around street children? Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the New Horizon family that um, it's, it's a building, like a home for these kids. Uh, how many kids are in this home? Yeah, we, in the beginning we had like a large number, but because they've been, we've been able to educate and many of them have grown up, it's been 12 years. Some have actually completed um, schooling and have gone on to university and work. And, but basically the home provides uh, shelter, food, education, healthcare, recreational um, trips and just basic needs for a child and hopefully a little bit more spirituality because by church and we have some counseling sessions for them. There's been a lot of traumatic experiences that, that they've gone through. Of course. So the numbers I cannot ever say, like they're always up and down because we admit some children. Some children are finished um, standard eight which is public school so what happens with our home once the child reaches standard eight we take them out and put them in boarding school which enables us to have more room in the home to rescue the younger ones those yeah. are the ones we focus on in the beginning i was a bit like i need to help them more you know but then we actually you know putting systems putting some um strategies which now we go by that uh, we cater to when we go out there and and look for kids living on the streets we focus on the young ones and then yeah. you know that way that we make sure because once you're traumatized when you're that young you can never really take that back it's hard like you're going to mentally suffer for the rest of your life so we try to avoid kids going through any traumatic experiences on the streets which means that let's get them when they're young and try to have a safe haven for them before that gets messy so basically yeah we recruit and rescue younger ones and They go to a nearby public school and all the ones that have graduated from that home into secondary school they're all placed in high schools and in boarding schools all over the world boarding school is great because they can have the shelter and the food and education all at once and we pay for the boarding school wow. we cover that yeah i only uh, noticed boys in the home why mm-hmm. why do you only have boys that you rescue um first for a few reasons firstly there's a majority a larger number of boys They're still girls, definitely, and their cases are even more horrific. Right. We do have a couple of girls in our program, but not living at the home, right? We've supported her, them off the streets and mm, just, like, supported them through boarding school, primary school, you know? So the, the boys are because that's the majority of kids that you see on the streets. They form large groups, and the girls are very also very hard to find because they they're not so... It's not so easy to find them out on the streets. They'll come out mainly at night and it's very sad because then they'll have to like, you know, have to prostitute themselves to be able to survive. Um, anyway, so the basic thing was that 
I, I you know, there was definitely more uh, more boys that were out on the streets and suffering. And also, more critical is that our home is not doesn't have the facilities to cater for both boys and girls because it's just this one. I've always dreamt I'd love to like have facilities, but it would have to be like this dorm or this this kind of home has the boys and this. Uh, this side would have the yeah, girls. Yeah, you can't mix them. Yeah, either that or I had this right environment where there was like a kind of a mother for each home and there was boys and girls um, that are mo- each mother that could uh, could could live in one home of a family of five, like in a family environment. But you've seen my home. It's just like three main dorms and um, we, we keep them all in that one space because that's all we I have access to. I'd love to raise more funds and have an actual proper village for these children and uh, um, you know be able to recruit and rescue girls as well but at the moment that's basically yeah it won't work you have boys you have girls there's going to be babies in future you know in a few years time you'll have to you'll have to also have uh you don't know what could happen you know you don't want to get in a situation where they're now having kids and at the end of the day they're still rescued from the streets so there's a lot of education that they need and um, yeah yeah so when when i was there i also met one of those mamas that you were talking about uh, her name was gladys um are these um, mamas also, they lived on the streets and then you recruit them to be the mama of those street children or where do you, where do you get them? I oh, know. So what would happen is that within my organization, I really like to support and uplift economically some, especially women, you know, because then I could really reverse the cycle of kids ending up on the street. So she had kids and these women would just, no, they live in the community, but in very low income communities. I mean, their house barely had anything. And she was a single mother, two kids. And when I learned of her story, I was just like, wow. I, What's her story? So her story was that she was um, cooking some food. Actually, she was yeah making, because that's what she used to do. Her job was cooking fish, so frying fish and selling fish to the community. The jobs that they have as mamas are very simple, and but that's how they get by, right? So just um, she was boiling the fish in oil one day, and what happened is it caught on fire, and her whole body got burned. So she was like all completely burned, and I think it even like there was just a lot of fire all around, and she could not like she could not put the fire out, and she was burned third degree burns, like very badly burned. Honestly, I. Her, her her husband did not even help her out like even as that was happening and he just like left her she had two kids now imagine who were left there but she had to go to a hospital stayed in hospital for so long they had to keep her um but she had no money to pay for the hospital bill she also like she could not move for more than six months seven months yeah. you know and the kids had to like kind of try to support themselves i don't even know how they manage these two poor young girls they were very young um and the, the saddest thing is she actually had to get herself out of hospital and um without the doctor's approval but she's like i have to get out so i could continue to feed my children i have no other way so the healing that she had maybe when you see in her body i don't know if i, I saw you some scars parts, yeah. they were not fully healed because she did she didn't number one didn't have i didn't even know till this day how they actually let her out of the hospital because when i hired her we were covering we were i was helping her also pay off some of the hospital bills that she had for a long time like that was part of the contribution that she would work and then i would also commit some amount to paying off That's that amazing. hospital bill 
but the worst part was just like imagine you know not being able to heal from it your pain your you you don't have any income anymore so it was a lot of suffering that the woman went through and basically you know it would have been great to have like a social worker who was very educated and um you know the perfect mother for the home but at this point she was a mother and um all oh, this has been many years obviously when i met her so she was healed from her burns um but just her story her story was still that she had this hospital bill and she was still not still was struggling for her children yeah so yeah we hired her and Beautiful. she was a great mother for many years would click for she was she was like more obviously she didn't do the social side well being a mother she did anyway but she was responsible to cook and clean the facility mm. for the kids yeah. so we basically yeah that was what i could do to help give her a job and pay for her hospital bill beautiful when i checked your social media i saw a video of a woman sitting in a workshop and working on jewelry what was that about so tribeirth is one of our latest program a project sorry um it has its own entity now because it's a social enterprise more of a business set up where we employ and um empower stigmatized women so women living with hiv aids and single mothers um to produce ethical jewelry made in a very sustainable way using locally recycled materials recycled metals gemstones not recycled gemstones but recycled and um brass which is what we make the jewelry from and silver and we yeah have try to make the the workshop as sustainable as possible and in this way it will be able to economically support these women stigmatized women from the communities but also it was a way for me to set up a fundraising arm to support local aids projects i'm still trying to build that so it's like really you know businesses generally will take some years to kick off but we're trying to we've taught them women in various disciplines of jewelry making they know how to set stones they know how to create all the designs that i've I, like so i design and they they create the jewelry um we have the the machine set up there we we had donors that invested in buying machines for them so we have a fully functional running sustainable jewelry workshop and these women create yeah really beautiful pieces it's been a struggle throughout this like corona time of course you know having a business especially a startup um has been a bit challenging but i feel it's really important because i just want to work on more sustainable projects in um you know in africa in kenya at least i believe that that's really the root cause and we can prevent all of these issues of street kids and you know other issues of you know most poverty related issues are mostly from unemployment from not having opportunities to work. to work and um you know to provide healthcare education food for your kids all of this could be really solved by just the unemployment rate in Kenya is over 40% now you could imagine um you know how that would impact a country and so i think and i believe we have to look at africa and all these developing countries in a totally different way if i've learned anything over my 12 years of doing work in um you know these underdeveloped countries it's like okay let's not look at africa as being poor they they of course they have those issues but those issues are because we we also don't help to change it sustainably we help just to really put a bandaid over by sending over food and foreign aid and for me it's like no they have abundant of resources how do we take these resources and make them rich from it make them gain employment and gain resources of their own through these materials and that's why i love working with their own materials like the gemstones i mean africa kenya 
in general has an abundance of beautiful gemstones that could be turned into beautiful products like the jewelry and could be put they have so so many materials that we can say okay how can they help themselves with their own resources and that's the angle that i'm looking at in terms of charity now it's not a way of looking like oh they need us to help them no. yeah no i definitely feel that it's just i don't feel comfortable anymore working in the sector of let's just give food because it's that hasn't helped for many years a lot a lot of the larger ngos I don't have to name names, but we all know it does, they don't really change much because they, they need these issues to remain in these communities so they can get a, so they can still have, have a job, a job here, yeah. basically. And um, if, if all these issues were changed, then we wouldn't be able to exploit countries like Congo and other countries that without their resources, we, this world would not even be able to operate. Like I was saying, you know, your laptops, your, your, um, computer, your phones, everything comes from resources from... Um, and minerals and so much more comes from this country alone, Congo. So I think that's not fair. We just need to, to keep that resources in Africa and help them be able to profit from their own rather than exploit them from the resources. Fun fact though, speaking of cycle and everything's connected. So Sumer being the fashion designer, designing in Australia, then going to Kenya, helping street children and now you're back in designing mm. it's such a such a nice you really use all the all the skills that you learned during your life you just you use them and in, in the different environments that you're facing i really i really love that it's very inspiring yeah i think what's happened is for many years even while i was in kenya and i had the children's home i had the health clinic At the back of my mind, I always knew I need to use my skills that I've learned in Australia, my art skills and um, you know, fashion skills and all that. I, I can't just let that go to waste. I know that it, that could empower some women here. Um, I just never had the time because building an organization and of course it's not easy in all these different programs and it's just such a small organization trying to fundraise as well write proposals it's just very demanding and my time was very limited i knew at the back of my mind that if i was to reverse time and go in the first thing i would do was set up is set up a social enterprise a business first that could support any projects i begin because then i'm not going to struggle forever trying to find funding and that's what it's exactly. basically been like for me for several years um but yeah it's really beautiful i think that i can use art now and um you know which is another one of my great passions and together with serving you know and doing humanitarian work those two are like a beautiful marriage that i'm that i'm you know exploring now very romantic <laughs> okay so back in kenya there's one thing that is always in the back of my mind. You told me that networking is the key to everything. Uh, without networking, you wouldn't be able to do the work that you're doing now. And in fact, you struggled so much at the beginning like because you didn't have any connections to people and like donors that uh, you reached a low point and had to leave Kenya and spend time in Dubai. Uh, what happened was I was... It was a couple of years into the work that I was doing and it was still very difficult for me because I didn't have, again, this large team and a lot of funding coming through to kind of implement all the ideas and strategies that I had. And it was getting a bit more difficult. And basically what happened was 
a lot of kids and it overwhelmed me their needs overwhelmed me and i didn't really i wasn't ready for all of these costs that would come in in kenya what would happen you take them to school and then there would be like these extra fees and extra tuition costs and food for school and it was just our budget became so large and then we got out of hand a little bit i did a fundraiser i didn't really work there in kenya i was very you know i was new to all of these okay so and then i had to leave kenya because just some paperwork issues and I ended up in Dubai and I knew uh, luckily I was able to stay with a friend that my friend um my cousin kind of suggested to me and I stayed with him and in Dubai yeah in Dubai a friend of mine now who support he still supports local aid because of the experiences and stories I shared with him it was honestly a really really tough time for me I was so down all I wanted to do was continue finding funds for these kids because I told you these stories and how hard it was for me to deal with not being able to provide for them and we're not having enough funds it was just like we never could get enough funds to really pay for all of these kids and and so I really struggled and a part of me was like there's no way I could go back there's no funding there I need to be out here searching for money and also the reason why you uh, went to Dubai is to you were at a point where you struggled financially yeah. and you had to leave the country yeah. so you just went to dubai for like a transition time to, th exactly. to think things through i didn't really have a choice either it was just this pivotal moment where i'm like i need to get out i need to because of the paperwork i need to get out because i need to find funding everything was just going very bad there was a lot of challenges i was really down about everything that was happening and well at some point my friends even suggested look just find a fashion job in here in dubai they, they would pay so much money for an australian who the fashion design background and so in my mind I'm like well if I go back I don't really have any funds for them and you know funding is not coming easily so I even kind of thought of this idea okay maybe I could I could look for a job as a fashion designer maybe work in Dubai for a few months and keep sending that money back to yeah. the, to the team and that way I'll be it'll keep the programs and not abandon them yeah so for months I would look for a over that month I was looking for a fashion design job and I just yeah I wasn't getting it I don't know I, it was like really shocking to me because I had with experience I was like why can't I get a job this is ridiculous. so that wasn't obviously what I was meant to do because it didn't go through and um, and what were the people thinking in Kenya when you when you uh, left yeah that was hard too they probably thought I abandoned them but I was really trying to talk to them every day reassuring them when I got there my friend again this this um uh, this person that I was staying with supported me I sent something over it was just like I was pushing every day I lived like that for a while by the way just pushing every day trying to send money trying to persevere um and just pay and even when we couldn't pay for everything we at least wanted to just give the money for the food get the money for the education you know always my main priorities and then I just was so down it was just like okay what do I do now I can't even get a job here and my friend said you know let's get out for one day like let me just get you I'll go to dinner and and you know you need to be out some fresh air and it's Dubai was, yeah you know it's not and it's funny because anyone else would have loved to go there experience and I was just not in that state I didn't care for the western world anymore I didn't care for all of these like luxuries and wherever I stayed I was even like shocked at how I got myself there from the slums of Kenya to like a it was nearly like a penthouse in Jumeirah in like yeah, you know, it's uh, crazy in Dubai. In Dubai, and I was like, I don't want to be here. I just want to be with the kids. But it was great. He helped me. I sent some money over. But I was still like, this is only going to push us for the month. Like I need to keep raising money. So I got out. I took his um, suggestion to get in a car and go with him. 
when we got out of the car and we were all going home, you know, just saying bye. And then as I looked, because we were outside on the streets at night and I got out of a car while I was um, saying bye to the friends that I had met. And then on the corner of my eye on the streets, I'd seen one loose newspaper page that was just, and the way it was moving was really mysterious, but it was just flowing on the street. I know, I was just like, I don't know why it caught my eye, but it was flowing like very softly on the road. And I was just hypnotized by this piece of paper. I don't know why, uh, but a piece of um, newspaper. And I looked over and I told my friend, look, I need to go pick up this paper. I know that I have to look at whatever it is. Like, I just need to pick it. And he, he's like, you are so crazy, honestly. Like, <laughs> you well, lost don't it. Go, don't go and pick up that. It's on the floor. It's, it's rubbish. I'm like, no. I went and picked it up and opened it. Now, it's not even a full newspaper. It's just one page. And the first thing, the main article, the whole article was about this one woman who had given up her life to go to Africa and serve. And um, it was just literally my life on this paper and about how she didn't give up and she was like there in Africa doing all this work. And it hit me and it was like, this is my sign. It was like saying, you just go back, I've got your back. You know, God or say, or universe, whatever you believe in, was just telling me, you go back, you keep fighting, I've got your back, I'll make it happen. Ever since that day again, I knew that no matter what you do, if you don't give up, there's a way you will achieve what you want to achieve. You know, you just have to push through. Some people, some people, honestly, like will give up just at the moment when they're about to make things happen. You know? But it's more about having belief in yourself. If you and now I went back just with that. I mean, that newspaper was enough to give me confidence, give me not being fearful, not being depressed anymore about money. Going back and telling myself I will get that money and I will raise the money. And I don't know. I'm telling you, everything transitioned from there. When I got to Africa, so many people came in. They were helpful. I was getting money from. I was getting funding from outside. I truly believe once you change your perception and you're, you have a more positive outlook, things in your life shift. That's just the law of nature. <laughs> and, and you started networking. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Like crazy. Like I just met and what happened, it just like was a domino effect. One person, somebody invited me to present at a certain, another organization, a local organization. They're called Rotary. I don't know if yeah. I presented and they said, okay, we'll come. it was unbelievable at that point time I didn't even have a home for the kids I was just renting out some premises you know when I first met these kids I rented out some premises I said kids like look you have a home now we had nothing no beds and anything at least they're not on the street at least yeah that's all I wanted was at least be safe and I'm going to get you food and we will start to develop these programs and put better systems in place eventually and it did like the program for for the food and um, the education and all but anyway so this organization, Lions Club, was um, the actual organization I presented in front of. And they said, okay, we'll come have a look. They came and looked and they literally found us land and built a home. So now imagine, this is the funniest story. So imagine if I had stayed in Dubai, continued finding work, like I would have missed this opportunity. That was only because I believed in it so much and I just had a positive outlook on what was about to happen. And mind you, this is this is why I know this was meant to happen in my life because when I went back to Kenya and I started getting all this positive luck, I got an email from a lot of the jobs in Dubai saying, "We have a, oh, we love your CV. Would you like to come <laughs> in for an interview? Would you like to come in?" And I was like, "Oh wow, I was just not meant for that. You know, I was not meant to be there. Like I could have got all of these approvals and opportunities to work in Dubai if I had waited maybe a few weeks. It was just not meant to be." Like, can we just take a moment right now? Because I feel like every listener that is not a believer suddenly turned into a believer after hearing this story. Because um, 
Can we just give credit to this piece of newspaper? Yeah, it was, I mean, literally. You're not making this that? up. <laughs> no, I still have the newspaper for proof, by the way. Oh my, I, <laughs> I have wow. it. I'm in Kenya, but I have it. And it was, I mean, you know, so I picked it up. I took it back to the guy who said I was crazy for yeah. picking it up. And I'm like, oh my God, just look at this. And he looked at me, his face literally went white. He's like, oh my God how did you know that that's what was on the paper? I'm like, of course I didn't know. Yeah, of I've course. never been to this part of Dubai. You're the one who took me here and I'm seeing a random page. I would have cried. I, it's just like, yeah, it's it's crazy. And you know, I yearn for these. And that's I don't know, when this happens. And I truly feel when you're more connected with yourself, I'm telling you, these things is not just limited to me and I get to experience these people. This happens to people countless of times but they 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 follow their heart they listen to themselves they went you know I, maybe somebody would have heard that voice in their head go pick it up and they would have just disregarded it you know that story also shows me that it's not just sunshine and roses like you just not go there like oh i built this ngo and now everything is working how it should be and i just saved people like no there's so much up and down so uh, I really applaud applaud you for like continuing and not giving up. Like, let's be honest, it takes so much strength from you. How do you stay sane? How do you sustain yourself, like financially, mentally, physically? Yeah, I think there's with every experience you build resilience and you build strength, and that is like it fills up your cup slowly, slowly. Yeah, and then what? You know, in time after something very challenging happens to you, you know, you've built this, you're, you're like, you're strong, you're, you've got this, you can do it. So that's why I really encourage people to not worry if they're going to fail or have challenges or, oh, I'm going to create all this, I'm going to lose. No, you need to lose. You need to fail. You need to have challenges because that's where you're going to grow and have the strength for the next project you build. You're going to master that because you're going to have so much strength to continue. I, but what I, do you I do? Even when I was... Like, what are you, uh, do you implement something in your daily life to... Uh, oh, I practice as my routine and my, I'm very, very strict with the way that I make sure that I have this balance between my physical, my mental and spiritual self. That is very important for me and it's been that way since I've been very young. And maybe that's why these like little spiritual kind of um, events happen in my life because I've, I've just been really connected to that. I feel like when that's all balanced, you really can do anything in this world. Like when you're when you're physically fit and you've got it all, you're very healthy, but you're stressed and you're literally going through depression. What's the point of that? You really you're still going to kind of like eventually get sick from your from your stress and of course. Right? So I feel like I've really tried to I've really tried to balance all of that and I do that through spiritual work for my spiritual self. Um, meditation, yoga, I try to eat healthy, exercise, that's all for my, you know, mental state and, and health and financially, I've just built up a system where, you know, over the years I've had a lot of help, like I get specific funding for the kids and the projects and then over years I've had very generous people that have committed to just sending a portion which is so, which is different to the funding that we get through the website just for the kids it doesn't come to me yeah. but they have dedicated they said you could you, you know this will go to to for you to sustain yourself of you know, there's a certain limit it's never been enough to be completely honest i don't want to say that and not sound appreciative because without these people i just would not be here today and i'm so thankful for them um but 
also that's why I built Tribirth because I'm ready to take a wage for uh, take a wage from the from this business now to of sustain course. myself to sustain the projects and that was a main aim of that jewelry business so I could be able to draw a wage and not really depend on other people because they've helped me enough I'm so Tribirth will eventually do that you know hopefully that's my plan that I could be sustaining myself through that and then of course paying the wage to sustaining all these women and and uh, local aid yeah and the main aim of course is to be able to fund all the projects and now the aim is to fund at least the basic operations and then any funding that comes in could go towards building maybe other facilities building more things which we've never been able to because whatever we get it's just always going to basic education once one term is over i've got to find fees for the next term and it's that the business will pay will be able to have enough resources for that and people that donate through the websites and donate through you know, other other avenues can then go to actually, we can say, okay, all of your money is going directly to this project where we're going to build a house. And maybe in time, these people that have donated will see an actual house, like another facility, sorry, like an art room or a, or an eco-village, this eco-village I intend to build hopefully one day. But yeah. Speaking of donors, how can people support you, your organization? Like what are the donation options, for example? Um, basically online that's the um, you know main way that if you if you don't know if you don't know me personally and have contacted me to give you direct information we have a website which is localaid.or.ke and um, on there there's you could read all about the um, all about the organization and have ways to donate financially and yeah, we've accepted some volunteers in the past, like yourself, <laughs> come over yeah. and... Um, well, I was very and, unconventional. Usually, <laughs> no, for the yeah, listeners, yeah, yeah. usually there is a volunteer program, but I was just backpacking and I was literally um, sending her an email saying, hey, I'm a designer, I can design for you, I just need a mattress to sleep on. <laughs> Oh, I'll never forget that. Yeah, no, that was a beautiful experience. We have quite, it's it's nice to have had that support from yourself and other volunteers as well, honestly. It's been great. I once did a fundraiser for Kenya, mm. and some Assyrians were criticizing me. They were saying, like, why are you not collecting money for Assyrians in Syria or in Iraq? There, there are our people that are struggling. So I was wondering, did you also face such criticism? And if yes, how do you react to it? Yeah, oh, of course I did all the time. <laughs> I would get messages on Facebook, you know, some some would try to be polite about it and some some were very rude about it. Um, I've got to a point where I'm very particular about who I let in my mind, you know, like I told you, I really work on my spiritual, my mental and my um, physical state. So if I'm going to sit here and let that bother me constantly and worry about what Assyrians have to think about what I'm doing, even though they might, you know, they might have a point in their own views to say, you know, there's Assyrians that need help. And that's just, a, that's, um, that's a good point. There are Assyrians that like might still need help, but you don't know my story. You don't know why. Exactly. You don't know why I was connected to Kenya. I mean, now many of your listeners will understand. I had this connection when I was very young. Um, so that I feel like it's being very judgmental because you don't really know my story. And number two, you don't even know. They don't know the full story because I have been to. I've done a mission in Iraq um, before, and I've tried to do work there. And yes, we we fulfilled you know a certain mission that I had there. So anyway, I did my best that I could. But overall, again, it's really important to make sure that you only allow positive things. Of course, criticism 
it's going to be helpful at some point maybe to better yourself and that but i know this is not coming from that um you don't give them attention i don't i don't at all i i don't think it's yeah i don't think it's healthy for me to sit here and think you know why i can't help you know and i sometimes will ask the question well what are you doing really you can ask me that but are you doing anything yourself yeah i'm sorry to be like that but that's that's the honest truth if you can tell me like that you've done enough then <laughs> go and pick your fingers at other people that are trying to do something but yeah it's fine everyone is always going to have their own opinions and if you're going to let everybody's thoughts and opinions bother you i would not me personally, I would not be where I am because I would have been drained from that and I would be back in Australia. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't let that get to me, you know. The amount of times that I've been beaten in Kenya from the political side, from there, there's just so much. It's not easy, actually, like you were mentioning before of how I've overcome some of the challenges there in, in Kenya. You, it's like you take one or two steps back and then they pull you, like, you know, a thousand steps back, you've got to pick up again and keep going. But, and that's why it's important for me to stay focused and not allow these things to affect me or what people say or what, what, yeah. So before we end this interview, let's talk about a little bit about your passion for nature and animals. Because um, actually I was just waiting for this question because <laughs> I want to tell our listeners about the crazy Sumer who almost got me killed by a buffalo. <laughs> yeah, we did one of our, we did a safari and... Imagine you drive with your car through wild animal territory and your friend who drives the car is feeling sorry for the buffalo, which is, by the way, uh, one of the five most dangerous animals in the world. And after seeing how dry the land is, she winds down the window so she can give him water from a water bottle. Um, but guess what? It is your window that is suddenly open. Uh, before the buffalo reaches you, you scream at her several times. And she finally drives away. Any comments, Sumer? <laughs> <laughs> the comment is the buffalo who was thirsty and I needed to provide him some water. Um, no, I, that's just, I feel it's this desire to act when I see a need. Like, I yeah. just, there's no, if there's an impulse and I don't think rational, I guess, in that point. Or there's no, there's, the fear is totally, I, I subside the fear completely and just go, All it was just very new to me yeah. and before you even said to me um the greatest death that you can imagine is getting eaten by a leopard so i already had some trust issues with you <laughs> yeah you basically thought i was crazy that's fine <laughs> yeah that's true but on an honest note like mm. where where does your love for animals and nature come from i think i was probably so disappointed in humanity when i was so young and i just wanted i felt like We just hated humans and like, look, they're so destructive and that. And we just, I had a great bond with animals, always a strong connection. Um, and that's grown. That's going to really appreciate nature and animals, the diversity of our planet. And I practice, you know, I'm vegan for 12 years. I really feel like there's also a, a part that we can do to make sure all living beings are respected and, and um, not exploited. I feel most at peace when I'm in, out in nature. There's like this sense of this the sense of like the animals and the planet is so ancient. You know, nothing's really been modernized. They've been this way for generations and generations. Their their society hasn't changed. Their their way of thinking. There's no technology that's come and influenced them. They are who they are. When you're in front of animals, you sense this like you have this ancient connection with them. For us, we've you know we have every day something kind of like 
can make us change. Do you know what I mean? Every day somebody has an influence on who we are and how we evolve. But when you connect with them, that's just real. There's so many things I love about connecting with animals. Like they just live in such simple ways, such simplicity, and there's such a peace. And you wonder why do we rush around this world, you know, being living this way when this is life to me. This is actual, this is, they gain peace just by just breathing and being calm. It's, I mean, you've been on a safari. It's just so transcendental and life-changing, honestly. But yeah, I feel like I, I love to be around authentic people, real people. Animals make me feel that way. Yeah. They are who they are and it teaches me. I've learned a lot from them from, for that, yeah. I think what you also mean is the coexistence that is happening. Um, because mm, when, exactly. when we did the safari, I, I just looked around and I saw the buffalo chilling with the zebra and the zebra chilling with the, what is it called, Re reindeer? <laughs> Bambi, how do you call this? Antelopes. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, my whole animal knowledge is from Lion King. <laughs> so you see all of these different animals and they're like on this water water hole mm -hmm. and drinking together and just not harming each other. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they also hunt. Uh, let's not talk about the lines, but um, mm. they're really coexisting. Yeah. And the most important thing also is they are always living in the present moment. That's another thing that I learned from them, you know. I don't think that leopard is sitting there or that family of elephants that's walking is thinking of the past and stressing and worrying about the past or thinking, oh my God, in the future we're going to die if we don't get food. They just live in this present moment and what life presents at its presents to them at that moment they'll take and be happy and move on if that they, they get the food that day that's fine they feed their families and move on do you know that's i feel like that's really really important lesson for me like just always reminds me to stay present like in the moment and not worry about the past and future and all of that but yeah this is I, I envision my life always to be surrounded by animals and, you know, having this, living this sustainable life of growing my own food, looking after myself, having a real simple life and not, not be so um, dependent on. I'm getting some female Tarzan. Do you say Tarzan in English? We say Tarzan. Yes. Yeah. Tarzan wives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I definitely do feel like a warrior when I'm out there in nature. <laughs> um, so lastly, we have Assyrian listeners from all over the world. Is there something you want to tell them? Yeah, maybe a couple of things. Like, I would definitely want to touch on touch on how important it is to really be able to get out there, explore, um, listen to your heart, and just go for it, and not be fearful of like things that hold you back that are more like society standards or or what's you know the accepted type of behavior or choices in your life to really go out there and explore traveling i'll definitely recommend oh my goodness it's i'm sure you're a big advocate for that as well like learning from culture seeing how the, the way that they do i honestly think that we could change the world just by adapting learning from some cultures and what they're doing good you can adapt it in your life or your community and you know have this like beautiful coexistence like you're saying yeah it really makes it makes you appreciative as well go out there and maybe explore if anyone's going through depression right now honestly any of the listeners because right now i mean look at the mental state of like many of us when you do go out and serve there's this satisfaction that you'll get and this purposeful feeling That is unlike anything else. I could, I would honestly recommend. I think psychiatrists and I should recommend people yeah. going out there and serving when you're when you're in this state. And um, point two, I would say, 
is there might be some listeners that might be thinking, okay, I want to do something too, or, or have always felt to do something, but they don't know where to start, how to make that change. And I would always probably advise to think about an issue that does not sit right with you. Everyone has like, you know, feelings and emotions about certain issues in their life. We're like, you know, this is just wrong, whether it's, you know, about female empowerment or cancer or whatever it is. There's, if that does not sit right with you, we need you to, we need you to do something about that because that's yeah. how we change the world, that you feel it in your heart and you make a change. So that's a great place to start. Figure out what really annoys you, what, what makes you, what kind of, what makes you so um, angry about certain things or, or issues that pull at your heartstrings and just doesn't sit right within you and and try to see which organization is working in this sector and try to contact them and start volunteering or giving your time or serving in which way that you can because there's no other satisfaction in this world let me just say that <laughs> yeah wow i don't think i have to add anything to this Thank you as always for listening and please remember to subscribe to the Syrian podcast. We'll see you next week.